Why don't you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7 this morning. We're going to resume in Mark chapter 7. It's a very interesting, very clever passage of Scripture we have to look at today, which some would describe as a, a battle of wits between Jesus and a single mother, which sounds kind of strange, and at first it is. As you're opening, whenever I think of a duel of wits, I have to say I'm always reminded of a classic scene from a favorite childhood movie of mine, which is The Princess Bride. I think most of you have seen it. If you have seen the movie, I guarantee you know this scene. It's unforgettable. The main character, Wesley, is trying to rescue the Princess Bride, who's been kidnapped by those three outlaws, and he gets past the first two, and he gets to the third, who's this Sicilian boss named Vizzini. And he's got the princess by knife point, and they agree to settle it with a duel of wits. And so they pour two goblets of wine, and Wesley takes them behind his back, and he puts poison into one of the goblets. It's iocane powder, odorless, tasteless. And he gives them to Vizzini. He has to choose. Choose one. They'll both drink. And one will live. One will die. And so it's the battle of wits. Well, Vizzini begins his deduction. He says it's so simple. He just has to devise whether or not Wesley is the type of man who would put the poison in his own cup or in his enemy's cup. And he says the clever man would poison his own cup because he knows only a great fool would reach for what he's given. But I'm no fool. So I clearly cannot choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known that I was not a great fool. So I clearly cannot choose the wine in front of me. And he keeps going on. He says, but Iocane powder comes from Australia, which is a land full of criminals, who are used to having people not trust them as you are not trusted by me. So I clearly cannot choose the wine in front of you. But you would have suspected I would have known the powder's origin, so I clearly cannot choose the wine in front of me. And Wesley responds, you're just stalling, you're trying to make me give something away. And Vizzini responds, well, he already has, you've given away everything, I know where the powder is. So it's time to decide, but right before, Vizzini says, hey, what's that over there? And Wesley turns his back to look, and while he turns, Vizzini switches the cups, switches the goblets, and he's like, oh, it's nothing, must have been nothing. And it's time to drink. And so they each drink, each man from the cup in front of him. And as they drink, Wesley says, you chose wrong. You chose the wrong cup. And Vizzini starts laughing, this this famous chuckle, this hearty laugh he has in the movie. And he says, you only think I guessed wrong. I switched the goblets when your back was turned. And he gives that the famous line in the movie. He says, never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. This is followed by three more hearty laughs. He laughs and laughs, and laughs at Wesley, and then he falls over dead. And the princess later asked Wesley how he did it, and he said it was simple. He just poisoned both of the cups. And over the years, he developed an immunity to this iocane powder. Pretty clever. It's probably true that you don't want to go up against a Sicilian when death is on the line, but in this case, he was wrong. He lost the duel of wits. It's a classic movie uh, moment. And today in Mark 7, it's another very classic story, which which I guess you could call a classic duel of wits in its own right. The Gospel of Mark, as we know already, it's filled with all these memorable stories from the life of Christ. But what we have today, this, if we call it that, a duel of wits, it has a few more surprises than people realize. On one side, you have a desperate single mother who is coming to Jesus for help. And she's begging and pleading to do anything for help for her daughter. And on the other side, you have Jesus, who surprisingly doesn't seem like he wants to help her. He just wants her to go away. 
Is that, is that right? Can that be? And they go back and forth, back and forth, like a duel of wits. And when you look closely, what Jesus says to this woman is, is quite surprising. It makes you stop and ask, did, did he really just say that? And what she says back to him is also quite surprising. It makes you ask the same question, did, did she just say that? What, what's, what is going on? It's an all-around astonishing story full of some surprises. We're going to make our way through the text now. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. We'll just take it by verse by verse as we normally do, exploring this as this passage has several essential lessons for us even today. And just to help you follow along as we go through, let me give you six surprises in this story of dueling wits. Six surprises to follow along. And we'll go starting with this. It starts off with a surprising destination. A surprising destination. Look at just the beginning of verse 24. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. Our story begins with Jesus on the move. Previously, he and the disciples were bouncing around the Sea of Galilee from one side to the next. Eventually, they they made their way back, most likely to Capernaum, where Jesus was once again teaching the crowds by the shore until he was surrounded by a group of scribes and Pharisees. This delegation of religious leaders came all the way up from Jerusalem, and they're there to try and catch Jesus in some violation of their law. Because they hate him. They're looking for some way to take him down, to discredit him in the eyes of the people. They're trying to trap him. But it fails. They fail again. Jesus, in turn, exposes their hypocrisy again. He teaches the crowd the true nature of defilement. It's not external. It's internal. It's, it's the sinful heart of man. That's what really defiles someone. That's what we've learned so far in Mark chapter 7 in, in real short. And we don't hear what happens to the Pharisees after that. Matthew tells us that they got seriously offended by what Jesus said, and we presume they left in a huff. They went to plan their next move against Jesus. But we do learn here that now it's time for Jesus to leave. He decides it's time for him to hit the road as well. And where do you expect he's going to go? Well, so far we expect, well, he's probably going to go to the other side of Galilee again, or maybe to the south, to Jerusalem. But no, this time he goes far north, deep into Gentile territory. He ventures 50 miles northwest of Capernaum through the rough and mountainous terrain to the region of Tyre. Now, you may have heard of Tyre before, the city. There's a city in the region. Tyre and Sidon are the two most prominent cities on the coast right there, the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And Tyre, in particular, has a long history with the Jews. The city itself was impenetrable, mostly because the, the, the majority of the city was on an island with heavy walls. You, just, you couldn't breach these walls. Nobody could conquer Tyre. Technically, this whole region was part of the promised land that God gave to the Jews, but in their disobedience and fear, they never conquered this land, ever. In fact, no one did. No one could take down Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar sieged Tyre for 13 years and failed. And it wasn't until Alexander the Great that someone finally took down Tyre because he did what no one else even thought to do. He basically, with his men, took stone and, and timber and, and dirt and poured it into the sea. And he built a land bridge to the island. He basically made it not an island anymore. And he built a ramp all the way to the city. Even today, the city of Tyre, it's not an island. It's a peninsula now because he just filled in the ocean to the island. And he rebreached the wilds and took it down. 
But even after that, this city and this region was still a rich, wealthy, powerful, plentiful land. And as, as it passed into the hands of the Romans, Tyre became the, the, the chief city in this Syrian province. But the, the nature, the character of this land, it's this Gentile-dominated. The city, the region, just full of Gentiles. Because like I said, the Jews, they never took it. They never really made their way in. It was also a center for idolatrous pagan worship. Baal worship really flourished there. In fact, they exported their Baal worship to Israel. And as time went on, their Baal worship just morphed into the worship of the Greek gods, the Roman gods. It was a very idolatrous land. And throughout most of Israel's history, Tyre was seen as just an evil oppressor of Israel. They were an importer of idolatry. And so you can guess how the Jews felt about people from this city, from this region. I mean, they hated them. They hated people from Tyre. There's a long-standing bitterness there. And so needless to say, Tyre is not your typical Jewish vacation destination. It's not somewhere any Jew would want to go or have business there. And that's, that's what makes this move surprising. Because here's Jesus, who is a Jewish prophet, a Jewish rabbi. And we wonder, why, why is he going there? What, what's he doing there? He has no business there. What reason could he possibly have in that unclean, idolatrous land? He doesn't belong there, but still he goes. And we learn next the reason for his visit, which is the next surprise, a surprising desire, number two, a surprising desire. Verse 24 continues and says, When he entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. Jesus arrives at his destination, some house, we don't know exactly where, but this time he didn't want anyone to know about it. He wanted to keep a low profile, just fly under the radar. It's like when a celebrity comes into town, they stay at a hotel, they use a, a fake name, a pseudonym. Just they want to be left alone. They don't want anyone to bother them or even know they're there. And that's Jesus. He didn't want people even to know he was there. And we learned this, this visit was not a mission trip to the Gentiles. Christ going into Gentile territory, he was not motivated at this point by a desire to reach and teach the Gentiles. He didn't even want them to know he was there. He had other reasons for being there. The pastor for months in his ministry, a lot had been going on. Just not long ago, remember, John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod Antipas, and Herod now had his sights set on Jesus. And meanwhile, all the Jewish leaders, they were plotting to kill him, and he knew that. He's in his third year. He just began his third year. His time is short, and he knows... He needs to spend most of that time now with the twelve. He really needs to ramp up his discipleship of the twelve because they're the ones who are going to carry on his ministry when he's gone. It's just that he can't seem to get away. He can't seem to find that time with just the twelve because of the crowds. We've already seen several times Jesus takes the disciples, they try and escape, they just go away by themselves. But the crowds, they just follow, they find them, they hunt them down. They still can't get enough of Jesus at this point. And he just can't get away. So what we see now, this is Jesus taking some drastic measures. He really wants to get away with his 12 to escape the crowds. And so he's willing to enter the unclean, unholy territory of the Gentiles. Even that the fiercely pagan region of Tyre and and Sidon. But even there, his reputation precedes him. He could not escape notice, it says. 
Earlier in Mark's Gospel, we learned several times Jesus ministering by the Sea of Galilee. He drew big crowds. We're talking 10,000 plus people. And they came from where? From everywhere, far south to the east, even far north. Even says specifically in Mark 3, people came to see him from Tyre. They saw him work wonders. They saw him heal. Maybe they were healed. And what did they do after that? They went home. And they told people, because that's not something you keep quiet about. You can't keep that a secret. Seeing what Jesus did, his news of him spread like wildfire. So as Jesus enters this town, this house, people know him. They've heard the stories. They've heard the reports. His reputation is already there. And he's not going to get quite the undivided time that he wants. Now that being said, we don't hear of Jesus getting swamped by a crowd in this house. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, we don't know. But at the very least, one person shows up right away. He gets to this house, people know about it, one person is already there, just ready to barge in. Verse 25. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Here we're introduced to this woman, no name. We don't know her name. She's a mother. Most likely she's a widow, just because the dad's not in the picture. We don't know for sure. But her daughter is afflicted. She's demon-possessed. We've seen that a lot in Mark's Gospel. We've studied that a lot in Mark's Gospel. Jesus, of course, is known to deliver demon-possessed people, to free them, to restore them. And this woman knew that. She knew that Jesus could help her daughter. That's why she's there. She'd heard the stories, the reports. And we don't know when her daughter became afflicted. But at some point, she thought to herself, Man, if just Jesus were here, if only I could get to Jesus, he could, he could do something about this. He could help my daughter. She didn't have the time. She didn't have the money, the means to travel 50 miles through the, the rough mountainous terrain to Capernaum to just try and find Jesus. And she couldn't bring her daughter. She couldn't leave her daughter alone. There's no way she's going to go see him. She had a, a little bit of hope. But realistically, Jesus, he's never going to come to this town. And so she's just desperate. She's desperate with just a, a sliver of hope. But then one random day, he shows up. He just shows up in, in this town. We don't really know the backstory, but this woman, she must have been shocked to hear about this through the grapevine. Jesus is in town. He's staying at so-and-so's house. Like, really? Jesus, the, the Jesus, he's here, he's in our town? I mean, that can't be. Why would he be here? But it's true. Jesus just rolled into town with the disciples. She learns about the house he's in. She knows it. She wastes no time. She's not going to miss this golden opportunity. This is perfect. So she finds a house, barges in, sees Jesus, bows down, and starts begging on behalf of her daughter. And is that surprising? It's not that surprising when you think about it. I mean, you would do the same thing. If, imagine you have a child who is dying from a rare disease, and there's this one doctor in the world who can treat it, and he just happens to be in town, staying at the Holiday Inn. You would go, you'd find the room, you'd barge in, and you'd start begging for help. You'd do the same thing. It's not that surprising, actually. What's really surprising, though, is who she is. Her background, her lineage, her descent. And this is number three, a surprising descent. A surprising descent. 
Look at verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now stop there. This verse 26, this is all Mark. Mark is throwing this in here. This is Mark's commentary. And this is not just for fun. He's telling us this information for a specific reason. This is important for the story. Mark gives her a double description. First, the first strike against her, she's a Gentile, which means a non-Jew. She's a non-Jew. And I'm sure you know how the Jews typically regarded the Gentiles. They're dogs. They're filthy dogs. They're unclean. They're unholy. They're unworthy. Don't touch them. The Jews didn't really like the Gentiles. So that's her first strike. Second strike says she's of the Syrophoenician race, which means, in other words, she's a particularly bad Gentile. Phoenicia, it's the name the Greeks gave to the whole northern coastal region, the region of Tyre and Sidon, so people that were known as the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians, though, they had settlements all around the Mediterranean. So these were called the Syria Phoenicians or Syrophoenicians, to distinguish them from the other Phoenicians, because this is the province, the province of Syria. But like I said earlier, Baal worship was huge among these Phoenicians. They were a major influence of the rank idolatry that infested Israel before the exile. Just to give you a picture, do you know the most wicked, evil woman of the Old Testament? Jezebel? Where do you think she came from? The Phoenicians, right here. And so again, the Jews, they typically hated and resented especially these Phoenicians. And to make matters worse, can we add a third strike? It comes from Matthew in his gospel, Matthew 15. It's the parallel passage to this text. Verse 22, we also learn that she was a descendant of the Canaanites. The Canaanites. Do you remember them? There's some overlap between the Phoenicians and the Canaanites, but that's probably a name you're more familiar with. Israel's most ancient and bitter enemy. It's from the beginning, the Canaanites, thorn in their side. They were supposed to get rid of them. They never did. These two clans bitterly opposed one another forever, and their descendants still do. And their hatred for one another was mutual, Canaanites and the Israelites. And she's, she's no Israelite. She comes from the other side, the Canaanites. So that's what really makes this move surprising. Not that she's asking for help for her daughter, we get that, but it's just who she is and who she's going to. Because who's Jesus? He's the Jewish Messiah. And you know, several times we've seen many people from Israel come to Jesus. And we expect that. Okay, sure, they're Jews. He's the Jewish Messiah. That, that's normal. Every now and then we have a, a curveball. We see a Roman centurion come to Jesus. That's a little more unexpected. But here with this woman, she's on the way other side of the spectrum. This is not the person you expect to go find the Jewish Messiah, to go seek this Jewish rabbi bowing down before him, begging for help. That's out of the ordinary. We learn from Matthew that she did beg several times. Repeatedly, she was pleading with Jesus for help. The disciples got involved. Can you guess what they said? Jesus, get rid of her. Just send her away. We, We don't... We don't need her. We don't, we don't really care about her, this Gentile. They had no interest in helping her daughter. They're just like, send her away. Let's get rid of her. And here's where you see that Jewish prejudice come into play, even among the 12. 
Because according to Jewish tradition at the time, it was unlawful for Jews even to associate with Gentiles. So having someone so unholy and unclean in your house, that's a no-no. You just got to get rid of her. Let's get out of her. Or rather, get her out of here quickly. That's the disciples. What do you expect Jesus to do? How do you think he's going to respond to this woman? We know his character above and beyond the disciples. He's merciful and patient and compassionate and kind and loving. So he's, he's not going to cast her out. He's going to accept her, right? Well, not so much. What he says in reply is actually something we haven't really heard him say before. And it comes as a bit of a surprise. This is number four, surprising derision. A surprising derision, which is like a word of offense, a disrespect almost, a surprising derision. Look at verse 27. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This woman is coming to Jesus with a request on behalf of her daughter, just deliverance for her little daughter. And Jesus responds, gives her a little mini parable. This is a one-liner parable. And on first glance, though, it, it kind of seems like he's rejecting her. It kind of seems like he's turning her down. It also kind of seems like he's calling her a dog. Is that right? Is that true? Is, is this what it looks like for Jesus to just be mean? We ask what's going on. This is a surprising response. And there's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on. Let's start with this little parable. It's not that hard to understand. The children represent Israel. They are the children of God. They thought of themselves as the children of God. It's rooted in the Old Testament. And the bread, to say it concisely, represents the blessings of God. And those blessings come in many forms, but we could all agree that God gave his blessings primarily in the Old Testament to the Jews. God has chosen and covenanted with Israel to bless them richly above the other nations. And speaking of which, the dogs, that's the other nations. The Gentiles are the dogs. They have not been given the blessings of God. Like Paul said in Romans 9, it's to the Israelites that belong adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the law and the temple and the promises. The point is, Israel was given the bread, not the Gentiles. So why is Jesus saying this, though? What's, what's his point? Well, he's explaining his ministry, his purpose. This Gentile woman is asking help from the Jewish Messiah. But the Jewish Messiah came for the Jews. He didn't come for the Gentiles. It's like when Jesus sent the twelve out to preach. Do you remember what he told them? He said this in Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. He told them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said, don't even go there, just only Israel. And then also in Matthew 15, which again, that's a parallel passage to our text. We learn a little bit more. Initially, this woman came and she just cried out, Matthew 15:22, Have mercy on me, Lord. She's just begging. And we learn about his first response. And how did he first respond to the woman? Verse 23 says, but he did not answer her a word. He didn't even say anything. He just gave her the cold shoulder. He didn't respond. 
She's asking for help for her daughter and just stands there, just lets her go and doesn't say anything. Then he turns to his disciples and says this, verse 24, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's like, I'm not here for Gentiles. I'm only here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's his mission. He's the Jewish Messiah. He comes for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He comes to redeem them. He didn't come for the Gentiles. So we're asking you this question. You know, why, in, in our, our passage, Mark 7, why does Jesus give this woman such a standoffish response? And the answer is because she's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. And she is outside the scope of his mission. He didn't come for people like her. And that's the truth. But, wait, not so fast. Because that's, although everything I said is true, that's only half the truth. There's more to be said. Because so far you might get the impression that Jesus is just slamming the door in her face. Saying, no, there's nothing for you here. Just get out. You're just a Gentile dog and I won't help you. That's not what's going on. There is more to be said. And when you look closely again at verse 27, Jesus chooses his words very carefully. And let me show you this. Because there are several indications that he is not slamming the door in her face, but rather he is testing her faith. And look at this. One key word here is dog. The word for dog that the Jews used was a, it was an insult. It was a slur for Gentiles. Even in the Old Testament, the word dog was used in a derogatory manner because dogs back then were, were disgusting. They were filthy creatures, wild, dirty, smelly, unclean, roaming the garbage heaps. You don't want them as a pet, trust me. And so that's how the Jews thought of the Gentiles. It's totally repulsive, good for nothing. They're dogs. But you know what? That's not the word that Jesus uses here for dogs. He uses rather the diminutive form of the word, which basically in English it's like the word little dog or, or doggy. He says doggy. It's like a little dog, a lap dog, a household pet. This is the type of dog that you'd be happy to find under the dinner table. And so look, yes, he's still calling her and all Gentiles dogs in contrast to the children of Israel, but it's not the outright prejudicial insult that it might seem to be. He's not saying what all the other Jews say when they call Gentiles filthy dogs. That's not Jesus. And there's another essential word here in verse 27 It's the word first. Did you catch that? He says, let the children be satisfied first. Which means, he's not shutting the dogs out. He's not shutting the door on the Gentiles. The implication is that a time for the Gentiles will come later. But right now, the priority of his mission is Israel. And that's very true. Scripture consistently portrays a clear priority of Israel over the other nations. God never intended to give Israel his bread alone, but they were to get it first. And that still continues. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that well-known verse. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And even the apostles, as they started the early church, they show up in a new town. Where's their first stop? It's 
the local synagogue. They're taking the gospel to the Jews first, and then they'll take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, if you know the book of Acts, though, you know the Gentiles entering the church at first was a big scandal. Because initially, the church was all Jewish Christians. And here come all these Gentiles, and they they didn't like that. Why not? It goes back to this deep-seated prejudice against the Gentiles. The Jews, they felt very privileged. Like, we're the people of God. We have the promises. Gentiles, you have nothing. You have no promises, no covenants. You're unsaved. You're unclean. And we don't want to be defiled, so we don't even want to touch you or eat with you. That, that prejudice even persisted in the early church. It's Jewish pride and prejudice at their worst. But this deep prejudice, it doesn't come from the Old Testament. It came from their man-made rules and traditions. According to their law, you couldn't even go to the house of a Gentile. And even Christ's 12 disciples fall prey to this prejudice because they're the ones who want to just get rid of her. Just get her out of the house. Just just make her go. But not Jesus. Jesus knew the plan here. He created the plan. And what's the plan? Let me just think. Why did God choose Israel in the first place as a nation? Because they were special or better? Not at all. He chose them because he had a purpose for them. God chose Israel to be a special nation among all the nations, to richly bless them, but for a purpose. And that purpose was to reach the other nations. The plan was never for Israel alone, but through Israel to reach the world. Israel was meant to be a shining beacon in the Holy Land, a lighthouse in the land, representing their God, sharing the glory of their God to all the nations. Even in the very first covenant promises that God made with Israel, he included Gentiles. He told Abraham, Genesis 12, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. And then he said to him, Genesis 12:3, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the Gentiles. Israel was given the bread. They were given the blessings of God first. But through them, that bread was meant to go to the whole world. That's the plan. That's always been the plan. So Jesus comes, and who is he? He's the Jewish Messiah. And he's continuing that plan. He comes for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. He comes for Israel. But why? For the same reason. So that through them, through Israel, the gospel will be taken to the nations. The nations are in view. After his death, that's exactly what happened. The first Christians, they were all Jews. They were true Israel, Jews who accepted Christ. And they were commissioned to take the good news to the nations. Christ's final recorded words to his disciples were this. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Once you guys to start in Jerusalem, then stick with Israel, then take the Samaritans, and then everyone. These Jews were to take the gospel, take the bread to the world. And so we wondered, did Jesus care about the Gentiles? Of course he cared about the Gentiles. He cared for them often, ministered to them often. And this is why Jesus says, John chapter 10, verse 16, He said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. He was talking about the Gentiles. So let's, let's bring it back to our text. Look again at verse 27. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I'll just pull this together for you. He gives her a little mini parable. He says, Listen, lady, I'm not here for you. I didn't come for you. I'm here for Israel. I'm the Jewish Messiah. The bread I give, it's for Israel. But he says, It's for Israel first. A time for the Gentiles will come. They won't be breadless for long. The door is not shut to Gentiles like her, but the floodgates aren't open yet either. And so now we see by saying this, we see what he's doing here. Jesus is saying this in verse 27 to draw out the woman's faith. He's not slamming the door against her, but instead, like John Calvin and others have said, he's leaving the door just a crack open. And it's like he's gently putting his shoulder against the door just to see how hard she's going to push through to get through. Will she have the faith that's needed to push through the door and get the bread? Jesus, he's done this before. He does this all the time. Remember with Jairus or the woman with the bleeding problem. He says things, he does things that are way out of the ordinary. And we're confused, but we realize he's doing this on purpose to draw faith out of people. He wants to bring to the surface true faith, great faith, so that all can see. And we benefit when we see these these displays of true, great faith. But primarily, Jesus was doing this for the twelve. The twelve in the room, they needed this lesson. When he's gone, they're going to be the ones to carry on his mission, right? And at that time, The floodgates will be open to the Gentiles. But as it stands right now, they still have that prejudice. They they can't tell that here is a woman with real faith. And she's seeking Jesus. He's never going to turn that away. He's not going to turn that away. But they would have. They would have turned her away just because she was a Gentile. So they need to learn this lesson. They need to see a display of true saving faith and they need to know that God's plan of blessing most definitely does include the Gentiles, even a Canaanite. And when you see this woman's response, it really makes sense. You get the picture. Jesus draws out her faith, and she rightly responds. She won't give up. She barges through the door. We see next, number five, a surprising dog. A surprising dog. Verse 28. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And this is, you can tell, this is an amazing response. If we call this a duel of wits, she can stand her ground. She's not going to be turned away by the parable, but instead she owns it, she accepts it, she enters it, and she changes it. She uses a different word for children and bread than Jesus just used on purpose. It's like she's saying, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs under the table feed on the little children's little bread or crumbs. She's accepting it. She's accepting her position as a dog under the table. But she's saying, does that mean I can't have some bread too? I mean, I just want a few crumbs. That's all I need. 
And this response, I mean, it is an amazing display of understanding and humility and faith. I mean, understanding, she gets it. She gets that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that he came for Israel first. They're, they're the children. And we Gentiles, we are the dogs. Even more so, this woman accepted that she was one of those dogs. She came from an idol-worshiping people, even a Canaanite. She had no right to the covenant promises of Israel. She had no privileges. She knew it. She accepted it. And that takes so much humility to accept that. She knows there's nothing she can say to commend her before Jesus. She has no badges of honor. She's just an unclean Gentile dog. But she accepts her unworthiness and just begs for mercy. And that's what she does. Matthew 15 tells us her first words were, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. She's, she's begging for mercy. And whenever you beg for mercy, that's real humility. And do you know why? Because when you're asking for mercy... You're admitting you don't deserve it. You're asking for something that you don't deserve. I mean, if you, if you deserved it, if you earned it, you wouldn't be asking for mercy. You'd be entitled. But when you beg for mercy, you're, you're saying, I don't deserve this. I shouldn't have this, but can I have it anyway? She's admitting that she deserves nothing before the Lord. And she can't even insist on his mercy, but she can beg. And she does. And she comes to the right person. Did you catch that in Matthew 15, verse 22? She said, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. That's a big deal. Son of David, that's a key title of of Jesus as the Messiah. That's a Jewish messianic title. How did she know that? How did she even know that? We don't know. Somehow she heard about it and she believed. Such a contrast. We just saw all the scribes and Pharisees, they reject Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. But here is this Gentile Canaanite, and she believes it. You don't know how she heard, but she believes in him as the son of David. He is the Lord. And in all this, woman displays a greater understanding of the mission of Jesus than his own disciples at that moment. They don't get it, but she gets it. She's the first person we see who understands Christ's parables first try. She doesn't need an explanation. She doesn't need any hint. She gets the parable. She accepts it and even uses it in her reply right away. I mean, how does she do this? Well, because of faith. She had a great and amazing faith. That's what Jesus said to her in Matthew 15:28. He responded, he said, you have a great faith. It's such a great wordplay. He's like, for a little dog, you've got a, you've got a big faith. She had the faith needed to understand all the parables. She had the faith needed to receive Jesus. It's like she's saying, Lord, you're right. I have nothing. I deserve nothing. I am cut off. I am unclean. I am the dog. But I know that you're the Lord. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of David. And I know you're going to bring the Jews great blessings and the Gentiles. But can you have mercy? Can't any of those blessings fall on a Gentile like me? Even just, just a crumb. It's just I hope you get it. It's such an amazing response of faith. And do you know what's required for salvation? Do you know what God asks of you for his blessings? And we know God is sovereign. He will do all according to his holy will. We know that. But he tells us something is required of us. What is it? It's faith. 
For by grace you've been saved by faith. But not just any faith. This faith, faith must come from an attitude of humility and brokenness. It's where you know you, you don't deserve anything before the Lord. Nothing. You are unclean. You are the dog. But you still cry out for mercy. And secondly, this faith must be placed in Jesus. You have to get the object of faith right. You go to him as the Savior, the Son of David. Only he can forgive your sins. And if you go to him humbly in faith, he's not going to turn you away. And that's what this woman did, even though she was a Gentile. And so we find lastly, number six, a surprising development. Let's finish our story in verse 29. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. The story ends. What makes this last part surprising though is not Christ's mercy. We know he's merciful. We know that. But again, it's, it's who this woman is. It's the fact that a Gentile got some bread before, before the time. And she doesn't need Jesus to go home with her to confirm she she came in faith. She leaves in faith. She knows he said it. It's going to happen. And it does. But she goes away not with a crumb. She goes away with the bread. And Jesus just blessed a Canaanite. And that's surprising. Here Jesus is sweeping away the prejudice of the Jews and their false distinction between clean and unclean people. It's such a fitting follow-up to last week's message. If you remember from Mark 7, where Jesus confronted the Pharisees over this this very phony distinction between clean and unclean. Their notion of defilement was all external. Don't eat that. Don't touch that. Don't do that. Or you'll become defiled. For Christ said that that's all bogus. You want to know where defilement really comes from? It's from your own heart, your insides. That's a real problem because we all have sin-cursed hearts. We are factories of defilement already. Which means that we're all already defiled before the Lord. And you think that that covers Jews and Gentiles? Yeah, that covers Jews and Gentiles. We're all in the same boat. Which means, if you take his teaching to its conclusion from Mark 7 earlier, it means that these, these supposedly righteous Pharisees, they're just as defiled before the Lord as this Gentile, Phoenician, Canaanite woman. They're just as bad. That would have made them like faint to hear something like that. But they're just as rotten. And this distinction that Jews are inherently clean and Gentiles inherently unclean is gone. It never was there to begin with and Christ is wiping it away. Everyone is unclean. But if you're humble and broken and you have faith in Christ, cleanness is available without partiality. Like Peter said in Acts chapter 10, that's when God flung the floodgates open to the Gentiles and Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And this woman here is a taste of that to come. You know, Mark chapter 7, when people read this story, some people get offended by what Jesus says. They say, how can he he call her a dog like that? Still, even a little dog, that's offensive. I mean, isn't that kind of mean? Why is he calling her a dog? But did you know that Jesus called lots of people lots of offensive things? He called people hypocrites, a brood of vipers, 
whitewashed tombs, foxes, dogs. He even labeled the entire people an evil generation. That's pretty offensive, even by today's standards. You'd offend some people by saying these things. But did he do wrong? Everything he said was true. When he said these things, it was true. And here's the difference. When Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites in whitewashed tombs, we're okay with that. Because we know they're bad guys. They deserve it. These guys are really rotten. They are hypocrites. So we accept when Jesus tells them hard things, which is just the truth. But we see Jesus calling this poor mother a dog, and we think, how offensive. What you have to realize, though, is, do you know who's really offended in this whole situation? God. Because of our sin. Our sin is the real offense to God. And this woman, although desperate, she was a sinner. Just like you and me. We're sinners. And our sins are offensive to God, and he is free to expose our offensiveness. He's perfectly righteous. And to God, you need to guess what? We're all dogs. We're all sinners. We're all deserving of judgment. We're all hypocrites. We're all whitewashed tombs before him. Will you accept that? And just imagine this. You're standing, you're standing before God, and he says to you, why should I let you into heaven? You're not worthy. You're just, you're just a dog. You're a hypocrite. You're a sinner. You're wicked. You're evil. You're a bad person. You didn't do good. Why should I let you in? Get out. How would you respond? And I'll tell you, lots of people, they just get offended. They would get offended. They would say, no, that's not true. I'm not like that. I'm a, I'm a decent person. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I didn't do the bad stuff. I'm a good person. And they would get offended, and their pride would turn them away from God. But everything he said is true. It's true of all of us. We are wicked before him. The woman in our story, she accepted that. She realized she had nothing to bring, nothing to offer, nothing to commend herself. But she had the right response. Lord, I am unworthy. I am the sinner. I am unclean. I am the whitewashed tomb. I am the dog before you. But would you please show me mercy and grace? And if you do that, if you likewise appeal to God through Christ by his finished work on the cross, God will hear. He will forgive you. He will wash you of your uncleanness. He will create a new heart in you. He will accept you before him. And Jesus once said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And if you're ever wondering what that means, just look here. This woman. That's what it means and looks like to be poor in spirit. And the question for you now is, will your own pride get in the way of you rightly seeing yourself before God? Or will you, you own up to all of our own depravity before him and come to him humbly, pleading for mercy? He will hear. Dio Moody once said, Jesus sent no one away empty except those who were full of themselves. It's true. So empty yourself. Come before him as a sinner, poor and needy. Ask, seek, knock, and you will find John 6.37, Jesus said, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Let's pray.
Our gracious God, our Redeemer, we're so thankful for these truths that we've learned today and, and we cherish them as well. Because we realize, we too confess, we are, we are the dogs. We are Gentiles in this room, I think all of us. And we are unclean before you, whether we're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. We have sinned. We're born defiled, our hearts are impure, and we only produce rotten deeds before you. We have nothing to commend ourselves, not a single good deed. Instead, just a record book of sins that reaches high as heaven. We have nothing. But we come like this woman. We thank you for her example. Such a treasured story of faith where we too can bow before you and just own up. We, we are lost, sinners condemned, unclean. But would you please show us mercy and grace through Christ. We look to the provision you've already made for mercy and grace. It's our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to him and we can rest assured because you will not cast us out if we come to you humbly broken, looking to Christ to save. We thank you for that. We praise you for that, how you have transformed us and because of that and give you the glory. May we seek you all of our days in humility, not letting pride get in the way of us, knowing you or serving you, but living for you all, the, all of our days, Lord. Thank you for our, our time together. In your name we pray. Amen.